0: This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is Lecture 2, entitled Theosophy and Somnambulism, given in Berlin on March 7, 1904. Today I want to expand some points I merely sketched out last time. More precisely, I want to speak about the phenomenon of somnambulism. This leads us into mysterious areas of human nature that from different perspectives have received the most diverse interpretations. You all know the phenomenon of somnambulism or sleepwalking. The word designates a particular psychological condition, a particular alteration of a person's ordinary consciousness. This state is such that through the person's capital I soul, close quote, Excuse me, let me read that again. This state is such that though the person's I soul, capital I, may be active in some very specific ways, ordinary waking consciousness, the consciousness within which we operate in the natural world and which we use to perform our daily tasks, is not fully active. In other words, waking consciousness is repressed, virtually switched off. Whether we call this somnambulism, Sleepwalking, sleep acting, or any other name, we understand by it a soul activity without the full involvement of ordinary waking consciousness, an activity arising from the depths of the soul and unilluminated by waking capital I consciousness. The human soul acts out of this dark depth, and from these depths brings up actions that are substantially different from what the person usually does. We know, too, that not every personality is suited for such to such a switching off of ordinary waking consciousness. We know that only those individuals who can be put in a kind of trance or dream condition can manifest this condition. Although these manifestations arise out of an individual's nature, the individual is in a subconscious or unconscious state. Over the centuries, this somnambulistic state has been the object of a wide range of explanations. In ancient Greece, for instance, we find priestesses, or so-called oracles, who could announce from their soul depths all kinds of things in a state of extinguished waking consciousness. Future events were supposedly brought up from such deep soul-knowing. The oracles might further be asked to decide, for instance, whether important matters of state, important legal decisions, were justified or not. Briefly put, whatever they proclaimed was ascribed to divine inspiration. People believed that when the waking consciousness of the soul is extinguished, it stands under the influence of the gods and transmits divine messages. Not only did the individuals who could be put into that state enjoy the kind of honor Bestowed upon the gods, but most importantly, the revelation that they transmitted was venerated as a divine message. If we now move from ancient Greece to the end of the Middle Ages, we find a completely different description and interpretation of these personalities. We see that these persons were then considered to be in alliance with all kinds of evil, demonic, or diabolical powers. We see that what they announced was considered destructive. It was something that could only have a harmful influence on human life. Persons with such gifts were persecuted for being witches. They were pursued because of their connections with the devil. Many of the most gruesome actions of the declining Middle Ages can be traced back to this interpretation of the sleepwalking state. More recently... If we look at the beginning of the 19th century, actually at the last third of the 18th century, we find that people were starting to study in quotes psychology, human psychological states. And we find some people who believed that the study of sleepwalking would give a key to understanding superior states in the human soul. They believed that when ordinary cerebral consciousness is switched off, and the senses no longer receive input from the external world, human beings are capable of experiencing things about spiritual events and beings that we would not be able to perceive in our normal state with usual sensory perception. Other researchers, however, merely saw these states as morbid conditions and considered it desirable that as morbid states they should be eliminated from the range of behavior considered normal. Actually, it was modern science, with its materialistic faith, that rejected any interpretation or explanation of these manifestations, and saw them as morbid, related somehow to insanity, altogether outside the norm, so much, then, for a few of the interpretations that have been given in the course of history. Next we must ask, How is it possible to trigger such phenomena? We know many people spontaneously get into this state when their normal waking consciousness is turned off. They behave toward the outer world as if they were asleep. Their ordinary senses seem not to be picking up anything of what happens in their environment. For example, they don't notice a bell ringing next to their ears. They don't see a light burning nearby. At the same time, however, they are most Delicately sensitive to very specific influences, for instance, any words pronounced by a specific person. They see nothing, hear nothing, except for what one single person is saying, or one particular influence. In fact, they are often able to sense what a particular person in the room is thinking. These things do happen with particular individuals every now and then and quite spontaneously. We call such people sleepwalkers. They think, act, feel, perceive, as if in a waking dream, a state of sleep, but a very peculiar kind of sleep, not at all to be compared with the common sleep we fall into to recover from the fatigue of the day. We also know that these sleepwalkers have a heightened capacity for perceiving and sensing particular events and that they can perform very particular actions, which they would be quite incapable of performing in a waking state. We have examples of their performing actions that are perfectly reasonable, but require more than the ordinary orienting capacities of the waking state. We hear of them climbing on roofs and jumping over precipices without any sense of the danger they are in, precipices over which they would never even dream of jumping when, in quotes, awake. They do things that they would be completely incapable of doing under normal, ordinary conditions. Such somnambulistic states can arise without any trigger at all, but they can also result from a person influencing the so-called somnambulist. A person can act so as to extinguish the waking consciousness of another, so that the resulting somnambulist, in quotes, is in an artificial, in quotes, sleeping, sleepwalking state. When that happens, the artificial somnambulist acts just as a natural sleepwalker would act. Particular terms do not matter, but the influencing person is called a magnetizer, and the personality is said to be magnetized. People say they were put into a magnetic sleep. What, then, is the meaning of these phenomena for spiritual life? What role do they play in the whole context of spiritual life? What can be learned from such phenomena? What do they tell us about the quality and nature of the human soul and the human spirit? Finally, are these manifestations really something completely abnormal without any resemblance to things that happen in ordinary life? it would be easy and thus tempting to agree with the view that these are abnormalities, but to do that would leave us hanging without any particular conclusion on the matter. On the other hand, by taking a closer look at our ordinary experiences, we can try to find a gradual transition from ordinary life to these abnormal manifestations. I am thinking, for instance, of the phenomena of ordinary dreams, which everyone experiences almost every night. Hardly anyone never dreams at all. Dream phenomena will show in a very elementary way how we begin to approach these higher phenomena, which I have so far merely sketched out. Dreams are often described as just fantastic images, empty imaginations passing through our dream consciousness. Those who think this are hardly inclined to take the curious manifestations of the dream world seriously. But there have always been more finely attuned minds inclined to study these fleeting images of dream consciousness more closely. They conclude, it is true, at the lowest level, that unruliness and arbitrariness mostly rule dreams. It is as if we were looking at the shreds of waking consciousness the memories and images that flitted through our consciousness in the course of the day. In other instances, dreams result from physical states occurring while we are asleep, or symptoms of specific illnesses, etc. This kind of dream is the lowest kind of dream, made up of images marked by their complete unruliness, their disorderly passing through the dream consciousness. An attentive observer, however, cannot help noticing that even the most ordinary consciousness can have dreams besides these disorderly, arbitrary ones, dreams that have a very specific regularity. Let me draw your attention to some examples that give us a deeper insight in the regularity we can experience even in the ordinary state of dream consciousness. You are asleep and a clock is ticking by your bed You do not experience the ticking of the clock while you are asleep. Instead, you dream that a regiment of soldiers is passing by your window. You distinctly hear the clatter of the horse's hooves. When you wake up, you become aware of having just heard the clock ticking, for it is still going on in your waking consciousness. You didn't hear it, however, as the ticking that your ordinary ears hear. Instead, it was transformed metamorphosed into the metaphor of a cavalry regiment's clattering hooves. Here is another dream. One Sunday morning, a farmer's wife and her friend go to town. Entering the church, they see the priest climbing to his pulpit and starting to preach. The two women listen for a while. Then something extraordinary happens. The priest turns into a wing and then into a crowing rooster. This, by the way, is an actual dream. When the farmer's wife wakes up, of course, a rooster is really crowing. Again, you can see what happened. The ear heard the rooster crowing, but did not at first interpret it as the rooster's call. Instead, the dream consciousness produced a metaphor out of what it had heard. The rooster's crowing was symbolically changed into the whole narrative I just told you. Our dream consciousness can take can spin very dramatic stories, Sense impressions are not taken in immediately, but are transformed into symbols. Characteristically, dream consciousness is involved in creating dramas. Here is another example, again an actual dream. A student dreams he is at the door of a conference room. Another student jostles him. This turns into an exchange of harsh words, leading to a duel. The student experiences the whole thing in the dream, All the preparations for a duel, a very long story indeed. Finally the duel takes place at the agreed location. Everyone, including the attendants, are there. The first shot is heard. The dreaming student wakes up. He has knocked over a chair that was standing next to his bed. He heard the chair falling not as it really was, but symbolically transformed at lightning speed into this whole dramatic episode. This is the sleeping dream consciousness, a symbol-producing consciousness, whose symbolizing activity can be illustrated by countless examples. We now ask ourselves, what is the relationship between ordinary waking consciousness and what happens in the soul when we are dreaming? Our usual waking consciousness has no part in these dream activities, for when consciousness enters the dream, another I arises a in quotes dream eye capital. Dreamers can see themselves, they can encounter themselves in a dream. We need to remember this. In the dream there is a split between the dream eye and the real eye, so that the dreaming individual can observe himself or herself quite objectively in the process of the various occurrences in the dream. The situations that take place in the dream are determined by dream consciousness and are completely integrated in the symbolic drama being played out. When we dream about events from our own inner physical life, we are dealing with a higher level, if I may say so, of this dream consciousness. Again, I shall give you actual examples. Someone dreams that he is in a stifling cellar, there are spiderwebs on the ceiling and strange animals crawl about. He wakes up with a headache. The headache has expressed itself symbolically in the form of this oppressive cellar. Or someone dreams of being in an overheated room. He sees the glow of a red-hot stove, wakes up with his heart racing. Very specific organs, particular sensations, are symbolized during the dream in the form of particular events. In fact, observers in the field know that for a given person a particular organ is stereotypically turned into a recurring phenomenon. Someone suffering from heart palpitations will have the same dream every time he has heart palpitations, as in the dream described, repeatedly dreaming of an overheated stove and things of the same kind. So external events are not the only triggers our physical body can also express itself metaphorically in the dream this is only one step away from a remarkable phenomenon in which dreamers typically persons who already have a tendency towards some form of somnambulism see themselves with some illness sometimes expressed in a symbolic form even though the actual symptoms may not appear until a few days later in their dream consciousness the sleepers assess their own inner condition. This, in turn, is just a step away from the next phenomenon in which a peculiar kind of human instinct advises full-fledged sleepwalkers through a dream about a particular remedy or some institution where they will go to get treatment. The dream in this case actually plays the doctor's role, advising about the illness and about the remedy. This happens to rare individuals with a prior predisposition to sleepwalking. As you see we are dealing here with a series of connected phenomena from disorganized dreams to regular dream experiences obeying specific laws. All the things I have described here are to some extent dream experiences. Another step will take us to the phenomenon of dream actions. The most common is people speaking in their dreams. This is a very common occurrence. We all know that sleeping persons will sometimes even give cogent answers to particular questions. At other times, when they, what they say indicates that they have not fully understood what was said to them. Or, and this is something that comes out if we go about the matter systematically, they say that somehow the question was subjected to a symbolic transformation the answer then being framed within that symbolic construct. Now, there is only one step from speech to action. A dreamer, particularly if she has a somnambulistic disposition, gets out of bed, maybe sits down at a desk if she is a student, and opens her study books. It may also happen that a dreamer actually resumes writing what he or she had started writing before going to sleep, or in any case, writes an actual text etc. What we observe here is a passage to actual activity from a simple perception or intention. Some individuals are very suggestible to hypnosis, yet do not go further than dream perceptions. Others, who don't get very far perceiving things in their sleep, can perform complex activities like the ones described above. Now, one characteristic of these dream actions by somnambulistic individuals is their compulsive, automatic character. Remember that in our waking life we do many things quite automatically. Light strikes our eyes and we automatically close them. There are countless examples of this kind of action to which we don't give any thought at all. In the end, all that we do within our vegetative life body, our digestion, our breathing, our heartbeat, our actions performed without our being conscious of them. Similarly, we perform reasonable actions in a somnambulistic state. For instance, under the spell of a particularly strong attraction, we can act in an unquestionably compulsive manner. We must now ask ourselves how we will account for such phenomena. Many people believe that in such activity we are eavesdropping on the soul independently of the body. Such actions, from this perspective, are proof that the soul can have perceptions independently of the bodily organs of eye and ear, and that it can act in the absence of conscious decision. But there are also many others who believe that in these activities the soul is expressing itself much more directly that the soul in such states is loosened from the physical and acts immediately out of the spiritual sphere. Let us now examine how these phenomena appear from a theosophical point of view. Theosophy shows us that human beings are not the singular, isolated beings they usually seem to be, but that countless threads connect us with the whole. Above all, theosophy shows us that just as human beings have various things in common with the rest of nature, so they also have things in common with other worlds, things that are imperceptible to our ordinary senses. Therefore we shall best understand what I have been describing by looking at it in the light of Theosophy. Let me begin by briefly describing what Theosophy teaches us about human beings. Theosophy considers the physical body with all its organs including the nervous system, the brain, and all sensory organs, as only one part of the whole human being. This physical being includes tissues and forces that the human being shares with all the rest of the physical world. All the chemical and physical processes that play out in us are no different from the things that play themselves out in the physical and chemical processes of the outer world. Yet we must ask, why do these physical and chemical processes play themselves out in our body so as to form one physical organism? Physical science cannot explain this. Physical natural science can teach us only about physical and chemical processes. But it would surely be inadequate for natural scientists to call the human being a quote, walking corpse, close quote, just because their anatomical examinations show only the physical facts of the human body. Something must be there to hold the chemical and physical processes together, to assemble them into a form, as is the case in the human body. Theosophists call this something the other body of the human being, the etheric double. This etheric double exists in all of us. If we develop clairvoyant abilities... We can manage to see the etheric double body. It is the easiest thing for clairvoyants to see. If you are clairvoyant and a person stands in front of you, you can suggest away the habitual physical body. We routinely do this in ordinary life with things right in front of us to which we are not directing our immediate attention. In the same way, clairvoyants are able to direct their attention away from the physical body. But in the space the physical body occupied, there always remains a bodily presence, a kind of outwardly identical double of beautiful luminous color, about the color of peach blossoms. This etheric double is responsible for holding together physical processes. At death, this etheric body, together with other higher bodies, leaves the physical body and the physical body is handed over to the earth, where it will perform only physical processes that the physical body does not disappear in the course of life is due only to the presence of the etheric body. Within this etheric body, and towering over it on all sides, is the third part of the human being, the so-called astral body. This astral body is a kind of portrait of our instincts, passions, desires and feelings. A human being lives within the astral body as in a cloud, For a clairvoyant who can see such phenomena, the astral body is clearly perceptible, with the physical body and the etheric double existing within it. The astral bodies of persons who always follow their animal instincts, their sensory inclinations, have very different colors, quite different cloud-like formations from that of persons who have always lived a spiritual life. It is different again in egotists and in those who devote themselves to others in selfless love. In short, a person's soul life is expressed in this astral body. The astral body also serves to mediate actual sensory perceptions. You can never look for sensations in the sensory organs themselves. What happens when the light of a flame meets my eye, EYE? This light exists in space, outside of myself, The so-called etheric waves move from the light source into my eye, penetrate it, and cause particular chemical processes in the back wall of my eyeball. They change the retina and then implant these chemical events into my brain. My brain perceives the flame, receives the impression of imprinted light. If others were to observe the processes that take place in my brain, what would they observe? All they would see would be the physical events. They would witness something that happens in time and space. Yet they would be unable to perceive the impression of light within the physical processes in my brain. This impression of light is something other than the physical imprint that is at the base of all these processes. The image of light that I must create for myself before I can perceive the flame takes place within my astral body. The person whose organ of sight is trained to perceive astral process sees quite precisely how the physical phenomena within the brain are transformed by the astral body into the image of the flame. Within the bodies I have just described, within the physical body, the etheric double and the astral body, within all of these is the actual I, capital, what we call our self. This is that in which we are conscious of ourselves. Of this we say that we are it. This I itself has higher parts, which I will not say anything about today. It uses the higher parts of the human being as its tools. Once we understand how the human being is put together, we also gain a way of looking at the phenomena we encounter in somnambulism. What is it? that happens when we are in our usual clear waking consciousness. An impression of light is produced when etheric waves reach my eye. This impression is transformed by the astral body into an image of light and this image of light becomes a representation. I become conscious of the image of light. Let us now assume that our eye has been turned off. Such a shutting off occurs in ordinary sleep. I will not go into the question of where to look for the eye when we are asleep, but when we look at a sleeping person, what are we looking at? In the true sense of the word, only one whose spiritual eyes are open can give us a report about it. Such a person would see very precisely how this eye, joined with the astral body, has left the physical and the etheric bodies. Everyone knows in some way that when we are asleep, the ordinary waking eye, the real eye, is turned off, and the physical body and the etheric double, holding it together, are left to their own devices. In ordinary waking life, whenever we receive impressions from the outer world, the eye, our consciousness, is always present. We do not interact with the outer world without the waking eye that controls these impressions from the outer world. Presumably when a clock ticks next to me while I am asleep, it doesn't stop producing vibrations in the air, and those vibrations strike my eardrum. Now, do you think your ear is built differently in the daytime and in the nighttime? Of course not. All the things that happen to the physical body in the daytime keep happening when I am asleep. But what is missing? What is missing is the penetration of the individual person by the I-consciousness. We can show in an experimental fashion the relationships between the parts of the human being that I have described. Let me present you with a simple experiment that can easily be performed with any sleepwalker. Let us assume the sleepwalker gets up in the middle of the night, sits at a desk, lights a candle, and tries to write in the light of the candle. Now do the following illuminate the room very brightly let us say with ten lamps set there. This was done in an actual experiment. And the person will continue to write as if nothing had changed. Now extinguish the one single flame, the small candle that he or she had lit himself, and he will stop writing, finding the room too dark. He will reach for a match, light the candle, and then go on writing, for now he can see again. As far as he is concerned, all the illumination around him does not exist. All that matters is the flame that he has perceived in his dream consciousness. Human beings, you see, need to penetrate their perceptual organs from the inside out in a very particular way in order for outer impressions to make an impact. It is not just necessary for us to have eyes and ears, but also to enliven from the inside what the eyes and the ears transmit to us in the way of images, representations, all of which ensures that things exist for us. In the ordinary course of things, it is our eye, our clear waking consciousness, that by itself brings to the outer world, from inside us, all that is required for us to transform impressions into conscious representations. Now imagine this consciousness is turned off. What is left then? What is left are the physical body, the etheric double, and the astral body. The astral body can still convert into images everything it receives from outside, but these images will not be transformed into representations. So impressions are transformed into images that surround the person, sometimes in disorderly, irregular ways, or in regular ways, if the eye is along for the ride, as it were. This is the kind of contact the astral body, the sleepwalker's soul has with the outer world. This is also true of the ordinary dreamer. We must, however, distinguish between the two kinds of dreams I have described. We must distinguish unregulated, disorderly dreams that pass through the person's dream consciousness from beautiful, dramatically symbolic dreams. In the case of the disorderly dreams... It is primarily the etheric body that is active and in contact with the external world. With symbolic, dramatic dreams, it is the astral body of the person that transforms the outer world into symbols, expresses it in the form of metaphors. Because in the current stage of evolution, our waking eye is realistically minded, and our waking consciousness relates to things by trusting in our combining calculating reason, every sensation is combined with all others in a way that characterizes clear waking consciousness. But we could think of other ways, other states of consciousness. We might think that the human being sinks deeper into nature, then our rational point of view ceases. This is again the case with higher levels of soul life. I will not go into this today, but we must look at the following. If the somnambulistic state is a heightened dream consciousness, how is it possible that we find regular actions, precise phenomena that have a sole character? It is possible to understand it only in so far as one does not consider the human being in isolation, but in relation to the whole rest of the world. We must be clear that what is present outside of us, in the rest of the world, is not the deadened reality of things strictly audible to the physical ear and visible to the physical eye. In the outer world, higher beings are at work, higher forces are active. We do not usually ask ourselves why, when we look at the world, we find the very laws, concepts, and representations that we have reasoned our way to in some solitary twilight hour. Human beings do not, for the most part, think clearly about the most significant phenomena and manifestations, those that cast the strongest light on who and what we are. Think for a moment. Here is the mathematician in a study, thinking what a circle is, what an ellipse is, without any recourse to field observations he or she puts down on paper the laws of the ellipse, and he keeps studying until he knows what a circle is, what an ellipse is, etc. Later, still working on his own intellectual power, he discovers the law of the ellipse, planetary cycles and other natural phenomena. The same is true in our spiritual life. The laws that our mind thinks in solitary study are the same laws that operate outside of us, in the natural world, the same laws that rule the world. Granted that we call wisdom the things that human beings think, we find that outside of ourselves things are built in the same wise way, and human beings can observe them. In fact, if we look at the world in greater detail, we find that its own wisdom is superior in many ways to what the human mind can think and invent. Take the beaver's achievements, beavers are truly astounding. It isn't just that their constructions demonstrate an instinctive sense of architectural form that couldn't be more perfect. They show us something more. Beavers protect their hiding places by building dams that retain water and in very specific ways slow down or speed up its rate of flow. The dams are set against the force of the stream in a way that engineers would not be able to do better. The layout of the dams is such that the slope of a dam and the angle at which it is set allow us to calculate quite precisely the speed and force of the water current. These dams are laid out in a way that engineers in their studies could not calculate better, using their science attained at the cost of a great deal of human thinking and effort. Another example. Consider a very ordinary thigh bone, femur. If you look at this through a femur, I'm sorry. If you look at this through a microscope, you will see that it is not a compact structure comparable say to a piece of mortar. Instead, under the microscope the bone appears friable, a combination of delicate formations assembled into a very fine structure of timbers and scaffolds. A network of very delicate bone fibers is built up they knit together and support each other, and if you study this whole network of bone fibers, you find yourself looking at nature's remarkable wisdom in the construction of such an organism. If we wanted to build trestles that supported the individual parts of a wooden structure, so that every applicable excuse me so that every application of force would have maximum effect, we could not do it any better than nature in its wisdom constructed this thigh bone out of an infinity of minuscule bone fibers. We find in every single part of nature the kind of natural wisdom that a human being could only approximate after much spiritual effort. If we were able to pour our mind all over nature when we study it and perceive nature from the inside, we would have to conclude that nature is not the result of accident but the product of infinite wisdom. Try to imagine what it would mean if instead of your calculating reason taking in the impressions of the outer world through the sensory organs, you had no senses, but your reason were spread evenly throughout all of nature. You would then perceive the very essence of things, and not the effects of things on our senses. You would be able, excuse me, you would be standing in the middle of nature's wisdom. You would, in fact, be part of wise nature. This is precisely what happens when our waking consciousness is turned off. What I just described is the kind of thing the sleepwalker does. As I said, one might think that our brain exudes, as it were, our reason, consciousness, which then penetrates all natural functions and facts, the wisdom of nature and all its manifestations and all its facts but the fact that we possess such a clear, awake consciousness has the opposite effect, that of cutting us off from the rest of nature. This means that we need to receive the impressions of nature through the gates of our senses. Here is the flame. It makes an impression on my eye. The eye is a gate through which the impression reaches my consciousness. My consciousness calls up representations of those perceptions. By the very fact of having sensory organs, I am separated from the outer world, and the world must first enter my consciousness by crossing the threshold of my sensory organs. In relation to the world, I am like one who has been standing in a meadow, able to look in all directions, and then steps into a small house. Of all the things in the meadow, I can now know only what I can see through a small window. It is the same with nature's wisdom in general, which we perceive in every bone, every plant, everything from the starry heavens to the smallest body parts. Wise nature has entered into our consciousness as into a single point, and surrounded us with the shell of our organs and the gates of their senses. Our consciousness is cut off from the being outside of us, and can take it in only through the sense organs. But if we shut off our conscious mind, contact with the outer world is re-established. Then we really live again in connection with the outer world. For unlike our capital I, or your consciousness, excuse me, then we really live again in connection with the outer world. For unlike your capital I, or your consciousness, your astral body is not separated from the rest of the world. Astral fibers reach out on all sides and you participate in the life of the outer world. In fact, not just the life of physical nature, but also astral events, spiritual events are continuously happening all around us. When our consciousness is shut off, we perceive them. Everything that we remember, think and combine appears unmediated in the somnambulistic state as if it were conducted to our inner being from external nature, from all the things that live outside of us. Just as you cannot see a single star in the daytime when the sun is shining, even though the whole sky is covered with stars, because the light of the stars is obscured by sunlight, the same is true with our waking consciousness. The things that are happening in our bodies, whether our physical bodies or our astral bodies, These things are like a weak light, which is overridden by the waking consciousness. If we shut off the latter, what happens in our bodies becomes visible, just as starlight becomes visible at night. Sleepwalkers are in that state, and we must be clear that in the sleepwalking state a person is actually in a closer, more immediate relationship with the rest of nature. To use a beautiful expression of the German philosopher Stilling, who lived around 1800, "...when the sun of clear waking consciousness sinks, the stars start shining in the sleepwalking consciousness." Now, we must ask ourselves, can we really trust these appearances? They are true phenomena, they are a reality. But this reality is accessible only when we exclude the organ humanity has evolved gradually in order to orient itself on the earth, when we exclude clear waking consciousness. When this happens, a condition is induced in human beings in which something is revealed that is otherwise concealed, but which also pulls us down from a level we have already attained. For as theosophists, we know that the states we humans can attain in this way, which we think of as higher states, are actually states we had to go through on the way to our present human consciousness. I cannot go into more details on this subject today, but just as the natural scientific theory of evolution shows us purely physical evolutionary developments, in the same way theosophy shows us that human beings have gradually evolved to the stage we have attained. Our present consciousness, the consciousness we use to orient ourselves in our earthly environment, only appeared after humanity had spent millions of years undergoing a slow evolution through other states of consciousness. Before humans developed this clear waking consciousness, they had a kind of dream consciousness. In those days, human beings really saw all the proceedings around themselves in the form of symbols just as our dreams still transform everything into symbols many of the legends that have been preserved come down from epochs when humans were still close to this dream consciousness and created these symbolic accounts you can find more on this subject in the very interesting book of my deceased friend ludwig leisner who collected legendary myths from the whole world, showing how they were developed by a symbol-producing human consciousness that had not yet awakened from dream consciousness. Many legends can be traced back to this sleepwalking consciousness. If we go further back, we come to more and more deeply sedimented states that were closer to nature and directly proceeded from physical development. The human being, when it first appeared as a wish of the divine being, was in a deep trance. All humankind was in a deep trance in those days, the kind of trance we now observe in sleepwalkers when they can be, in quotes, magnetized into a deep so-called magnetic sleep. All these things were lived by human beings in earlier days, and now we are in the stage of clear waking consciousness. But this too is merely a transitional stage, it is the transition toward the reconstruction of this ability, henceforth operating out of the clear waking consciousness that had not yet evolved earlier. This is where future human development will take us, to once again cast our mind out over all of nature, to become clairvoyant in full waking consciousness. Some individuals among us have already developed inner organs, using specific methods indicated by theosophy. They have speeded up the evolutionary process and are really capable today of looking into the world of spiritual beings out of clear waking consciousness. Already now there are some among us who are liberated from dependency on the sense organs, who out of that clairvoyant contemplation are in unmediated contact with the spiritual environment they move among higher realities that are closed off from the ordinary consciousness just as you and i move between the chair and the table they perceive around themselves the spiritual world that surrounds us at every instant these considerations gave birth to theosophical theories the sleepwalking state teaches somewhat similar lessons for the things the sleepwalker sees by shutting off the waking consciousness are sometimes the same kinds of things the clairvoyants see while remaining in possession of their waking consciousness. But somnambulists cannot control what they see. Somnambulists can never control the things they tell you about spiritual goings-on in their environment that bypassed the sense organs. They cannot even monitor whether or not what they perceive is really happening in the way they describe it. Somnambulists can therefore fall prey to the most remarkable illusions. You might stand in front of a person and claim to be such and such a person living in such and such a place far away. The somnambulist will believe it, will truly be convinced that you are indeed the person you are claiming to be. The somnambulist believes you, and therein lies the danger. Somnambulists can tell us things, not just the kinds of things whose truth can be easily verified, but things about the higher worlds. They may tell us things that we cannot verify with our senses, make claims about the so-called astral world or about higher spiritual worlds. Somnambulists may tell us that they perceive a certain dead person. Now, it is true that somnambulists perceive something, they perceive a presence, but there is no knowing if it is really the deceased person that the somnambulists claim it to be. It could be a different being altogether, a being that actually has not the least relation to any earthly being. It could be a being living in the astral world that stepped into the earthly world. To make a long story short, in the absence of a controlling consciousness, somnambulists have no way of proving conclusively whether their impression is correct. This is a danger for somnambulists, particularly whenever we step over the boundary of the astral world. I can only make some suggestions here. For instance, the astral world has completely different concepts than our earthly world of good and evil. Our earthly world's concepts of good and evil are adapted to our sensory circumstances. When the somnambulist has experiences in the astral world, concepts of good and evil are easily shattered. This is one reason why mediums who at first communicate only truths when they are in a trance lose their discernment over time so that it becomes impossible later for them to distinguish between fraud and reality. Anyone familiar with these higher worlds will have no trouble understanding that just because cross-examination of a medium shows that in a particular case the person was reporting things that are inaccurate, this does not prove that the medium is a fraud. It can be the case, as I observed myself in one case, that a person in a trance goes to a store and buys a pious picture. Her eye consciousness is shut off. Later she emerges from her trance and has no idea how she has come by the picture. Upon returning to a trance state later, she produces the picture Explaining that she has received and brought it back from a supersensible world. The medium in this case had not the slightest idea that she herself had bought that picture, or how she had come by it. Strictly speaking, she was not being dishonest, even though the actual fact is a put on. The influences that can be exercised upon a person in a somnambulistic trance make it possible for a certain event itself to be a fraud. Yet the medium is not personally a fraud, and may in fact be quite honest and of sound judgment. This should show you that we have to adopt the Theosophical point of view when considering the problem of somnambulism. Theosophists and the Theosophical movement are convinced that access to the higher worlds, access to the worlds opened to us by somnambulists, should never take place without the presence of a clairvoyant in full possession of a clear waking consciousness. There must be a person who is capable of finding the way in the spiritual world as well as in the physical world. Theosophy requires that whenever experiments are made involving mediums, experiments that in themselves may be quite commendable, they should only be done in the presence of a fully coherent clairvoyant who can oversee the whole proceeding and verify what is actually happening. Often, however, it is common for the medium and those making the experiment with the medium to be in no condition to oversee the experiment. It is by no means the case that all such mediumistic phenomena are dangerous, but it should be easy to see that they can be hazardous in the absence of a clear sense of orientation clairvoyants who work out of a sound, waking consciousness know at each instant what is going on. They know what somnambulists are really seeing, how it matches, what is being described. They know what influences are being exercised, even when somnambulists insist that they are free of any external influence. This is really the difference between spiritual science and other similar ventures. I do not wish to question in any way the truth of these other endeavors, but their reality must be validated in the same way any other endeavor's reality is. Theosophy does not feel an urge to oppose all experiments with somnambulists, for, finally, the conclusion is always the same, the conviction that there is a spiritual world at work all around us. Theosophists will work in accord with other spiritual movements considering them, in quotes, sister movements, and will always be ready to give advice about the reality or truth of particular experiences. For itself, though, the theosophical movement will only consent to conducting experiments under the aegis of skilled clairvoyance. This is the case, too, in regard to spiritualist movements. According to theosophy, occult research should never be undertaken otherwise than under the influence of individuals who know quite precisely and quite consciously what is going on. This is also true of spiritual healing, which must obey the same rules as physical healing, always with fully conscious supervision of the proceedings and of their implications. This, then, is the point of view of theosophy regarding somnambulistic events. The theosophist point of view is equally removed from two extremes. It is not a superficial, external condemnation of somnambulism as consisting merely in morbid, abnormal phenomena. It also stands apart from those who believe that somnambulism represents the only way to attain knowledge of higher spiritual worlds. Theosophy knows the origin of these phenomena, can explain them from a clairvoyant point of view. As for all those who see in those manifestations messages about spiritual life, theosophy views them from a fraternal point of view, as seeking the same goal. To bring back a true knowledge of the spiritual world, to meet contemporary materialistic humanity with a spiritual, truly idealistic philosophy. This is a deep truth. A German visionary whom people do not normally know as a visionary namely Goethe, has said that we should not rip the veils off nature with our instruments, our mechanical physical tools, but that instead it is the spirit that must everywhere seek the spirit. Mysteriously, in the light of day, nature allows her veils to be removed. And what she does not willingly reveal to your mind, cranks and screws can't force out of her. Close quote. Goethe did not doubt the revelation of the spirit around us. He was completely unambiguous in the passage in Faust where a philosopher is quoted as saying, The spiritual world is not closed. Your mind is dead. Your heart is dead. Wake up, apprentice. Patiently bathe the earthly chest in the red dawn. And that's the end of Lecture 2.